So stay put, speak up, and show them Jesus. You remember those points from last week? Stay put, speak out, and show them Jesus. These were the Apostle Paul's three divinely inspired tips for gospel faithfulness and effectiveness that he gave to his young friend Timothy in the opening verses of his letter. Even as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, look at the text there, the aim or purpose of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, evidently the reason why Paul had to write these words on his way out the door to Macedonia was that certain persons, namely Hymenaeus and Alexander that we read of in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, and another lapsed leader in the Ephesian church by the name of Philetus, we read of him in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 17. The real reason behind Paul's faithful writing was that these men had swerved from sound doctrine, wandering proudly and pointlessly into what Paul describes here in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy as vain discussion about myths and endless genealogies, which only fostered rampant spiritual speculation rather than red-hot love for the Savior on the part of God's people in the church. Therefore, Timothy's tall task in Ephesus was to cut these proud preachers down to size thereby liberating the saints from the legalistic and the licentious teaching that was upsetting entire households in the faith. Here's part of Paul's point. Pure preaching, pure preaching of the true gospel alone brings real liberty to the church and an authentic love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not twisted teaching, not polluted teaching, not compromised teaching, but pure preaching. May God be pleased to give us such preaching here at Trinity. What we see here is that if we aren't careful to keep our focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we can easily drift into the ditches on the one hand of legalism, that is, God counting us worthy by what we do, or the other ditch of license. That is, God not really caring at all what we do. Legalism and license, two ditches of discipleship. Listen, the crisis in the Ephesian church that sparked a relevant question for Paul's readers, both ancient readers and modern readers, is this. If the false teachers there in Ephesus were reading the law, and they still found themselves contradicting the gospel, then is the problem really with the law? That's the question behind verses 8 through 11. Notice again what Paul says, beginning in verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered, into, uh, wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be, notice, teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Sounds like some of our social media pastors of today. 
verse 8. Now we know that the law is good, Paul says, if it is used lawfully. A little bit of a pun there. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers and the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality and enslavers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed or happy God which, with which I have been entrusted. In other words, for those of us who are spiritually united to the Lord Jesus Christ and are now under grace through the gift of faith, what is our present relationship to the law? What is our present relationship to the law? And specifically, what is our present relationship to the Mosaic law that Paul has in mind? Now listen, to me, implicit in Paul's opening to Timothy are three big no-nos when it comes to nomos. That is the Greek word for the law, nomos. Number one, we must not add to the law's commands. We must not add to the law's commands. Church, this is the error of legalism. And this, quite evidently, was a huge problem in the early church. In fact, there is an entire letter written by the Apostle Paul in order to confront the legalistic tendency or drift, the error of shameful corruption of the true and pure gospel by adding works to the equation of saving faith. That letter, of course, is the letter of Galatians. It's not that works don't matter, but it's that works are the result of salvation, not the reason for salvation. We are not saved by our works. We are saved unto good works. And the legalist gets it wrong. Now, secondly, implicit here is that we must not detract or subtract from the law's commands either. This is the error of license. Legalism on the one hand, license on the other. Again, the Greek word for law is the word nomos. In, we transliterate that N-O-M-O-S, N-O-M-O-S. And it's where we get the term antinomianism, which effectively means against the law, against the law. If legalism, that is the error of adding the gospel, was the frequent first century hazard, then license, that is the error of deleting essential discipleship and obedience from the gospel in a believer's life, is clearly the 21st century hazard. Eat, drink, and be merry, we might say today. Calvary covers it all is no excuse to disregard God's house rules in the church. True gospel fidelity demands that we neither add nor subtract from the gospel, the essential gospel. Third, we must also not think that mere observance to the law saves anybody. Don't add, don't take away, and don't think merely observing the law will ever save you. We must remember some gospel 101, which comes in Galatians 2 verse 16. Where Paul says, For we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's gospel 101. Or what of the apostle of divine grace to the uncircumcised? What of what Paul says in his magnum opus, the letter to the Romans? He says in Romans 3, 19, For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Point is that the law is good, but the law was never given to make men good. The law's purpose was always to drive us to the Savior, never to be our Savior. That is a misuse of the law. According to the Bible, there are two broad categories of people in the world. There are those of us who are under grace, praise the Lord, and there are those who are under law. Two categories. You're in one or the other. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 12 and following, to those under grace, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You've been transferred. You you have a new category. You've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but rather under grace. Where are you this morning? Again, the goal of the law, according to Paul, and Paul was an expert in the law. Remember, he was a Pharisee before he was a disciple. According to Paul, the goal of the law was to drive us to the gospel, to drive us to Christ. In fact, if you only remember one verse from this sermon, remember Romans 10 verse 4. Paul says, for Christ is the end of of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the goal. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says the law condemns, but Christ redeems. The law puts to death, but Christ gives life. The goal of the law is to get us to see our complete and total need for the grace of and the goodness of Almighty God that comes through faith in Jesus. So listen, Paul is simply here in verse 8, anticipating an objection by those mixed-up miscreants mired in theological controversy. He makes a little pun using the word law when he says lawfully at the end of the verse. Over against those without an understanding of the law, he says, we know that the law is good for those who use it lawfully. Now, basically, Paul says that the real problem is not intrinsic in the law. That is, it's not a defect or flaw in the law. It's a user error. Ever get that message on the computer? I get it all the time. User error, wrong command. 
The problem is with those of us who use the law, not the law itself. The, law, the lawful use of the law is actually a life-giving, not licentious or legalistic use. Why? Because it brings us to the Lord of life. It brings us to the one who gives life. The law itself is good, and it serves a good and vital and holy purpose, threefold purpose really, to reveal sin, to prepare us to see the glory and goodness of Christ and His sacrifice, uh, pictured and uh, even prophesied in the Old Testament sacrifices, and it also demonstrates the kind or quality of life and behavior that actually pleases and glorifies the Lord. Our problem is that we can't muster that up all on our own. So we need the law, but we need something else. That's why John 1, 16 says that the word came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law came from Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. The law is telling on me. The law is being honest about me. That's what Paul's saying here. He, a few verses earlier in Romans 7 verse 12, Paul says, So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's not a problem with the law. There's a problem with the law users. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. The law is very useful when used in the right way because it shows us our defections and our stains. It is like the looking glass. Now, youngins, that's another way of saying a mirror. We don't talk like that. It's like the, the looking glass, which my lady holds up to her face, that she might see if there be any spot on it. But she cannot wash her face with the looking glass. In other words, the law is for seeing and not for saving. Spurgeon says, when the mirror has done its utmost, then there are still the same stains. It cannot take away a single spot. It can only show where the spot is. And the law, though it reveals our sin, our shortcomings, our transgressions, it cannot remove the sin or the transgression. It is weak for that purpose because it was never intended to accomplish such a purpose. How many of you know who Ray Comfort is? Ray Comfort is a modern evangelist, uh, perhaps most famous for the way of the master evangelism uh, training. I've gone through that myself. And he's infamous uh, for coming up to somebody on the street, cold contact evangelism, we might say that, and, and asking them, so you think you're a good person? And somebody will interact with him, oh, I'm okay, I'm better than the next guy. And he says something like this, well, have you ever committed adultery? Sort of an invasive question, isn't it, Mr. Ray? And of course, most people will say, absolutely not. I've never committed adultery. Are you kidding me? And he says, well, have you ever lusted in your heart after someone? And they're like, well, yeah. He says, when the Bible says you've committed adultery. What about this? Have you ever murdered someone? And again, they're taken aback. And the point is 
Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, if you've had anger in your heart towards someone, you have killed them. You've killed your brother. Or if you've ever uh, lied or cheated, you've broken the law. The, The smallest infraction against the law is to break the entire law. And it's a very effective evangelistic strategy if you don't catch one across the face. The point is that the law is good. But it is particularly and uniquely good and purposeful when it is used legitimately or lawfully. An example to the contrary is a 2007 book by a man by the name of A.J. Jacobs. Jacobs is a Jewish journalist who also happens to be an agnostic in his uh, religion. I guess maybe that's a non-religion, don't know. But he published a book in 2007 entitled, The Year of Living Biblically. The Year of Living Biblically. Remember, he's a Jewish man. He describes an entire year of his life when he tried to observe meticulously every single law, all 613 of them, and including the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20, as literally as possible. It's actually pretty interesting, and you can read some of his uh, experiences on his website, uh, ajjacobs.com. But for the sake of time, I'll just summarize a few of his surprising conclusions. He writes, At the beginning of the year, I wrote down every rule, every guideline, every nugget of advice I could find in the Bible. It was a very long list. It ran 72 pages, he writes. Some rules were wise. Some were completely baffling. Some were baffling at first, and then really wise. Some were wise and then turned out to be baffling. If you've ever read through the Bible, you know exactly what he's talking about. Now, here are a few of his conclusions. He found some of the Bible's laws to be unexpectedly sweet, wise, and even life-changing. Laws like this, keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy. He says, as a workaholic, as a workaholic, I learn the beauty of an enforced pause each and every week. No cell phones, no email, no writing deadlines. He says, it was bizarre and a glorious feeling. Now, we don't have to keep the Sabbath the same way, friends. We know that. That's a misuse of the law. But there's still sweetness in observing the spirit and the principle of Sabbath. Another one is this, give thanks to the Lord. The Bible says, he's, uh, this is his quote, the Bible says that uh, to thank the Lord after meals. And so I did that. Perhaps I did it too much. I gave thanks for everything, for the subway coming on time, for the comfortableness, comfortableness of my couch. It was strange and weird, but it was great, he wrote. Never have I been so aware of the thousands of little things that go right in our lives. Now, second category of his findings would be the things, the rules, that he successfully kept the entire year without ever breaking even once. For example, Leviticus 18, verse 18, you shall not marry your wife's sister. He says, it really helped that my wife doesn't have a sister. (laughs) Another category would be the rules that he found very, very difficult to follow. Leviticus 19 verse 27 says, you shall not trim the corners of your beard. He says, quote, my rabbinical beard became wildly uncomfortable. Plus, I was subjected to every beard joke in the history of facial hair. We don't have to keep that rule, brother. 
And then lastly, he found other rules that he violated virtually every day. For example, Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet. He said, this is like asking someone not to breathe, especially in New York, because New York is a city that runs on coveting. Or Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not lie. He said, once I started keeping track, uh, the number of lies I told was astounding. I lied to everybody. I lied to, my, to strangers. I lied to my wife, and I lied to my kids. You can't watch TV tonight. The TV's broken. Well, let's move on from him. Setting aside this man's obviously cynical motivation behind his so-called year of living biblically, the fact of the matter is that apart from God's work of grace by the Spirit, someone cannot even have a clue as to the real point and purpose of the law. It was never given merely as a guide for self-improvement or for self-justification. That's a great example, and the way that A.J. Jacobs used the law is a great example of a misuse of the law. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, again, back in our context of Paul's instructions to Timothy about dealing with those who quarrel over words and engage in irreverent babble, we read this, word, this verse, and our Awana kids should know this verse well. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In other words, Paul says to Timothy and to us, read the Bible, interpret the Bible, and apply the Bible in a way that agrees with the one who authored the Bible. It's God's book. He determines its interpretation and its meaning. You see, lots of folks read the Bible, but fewer still read the Bible rightly. Rightly. To use the law lawfully means to read it as it was meant to be read and to apply it in legitimate ways. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to have a year of change and transformation. Be a person of the book throughout that year in a legitimate sense. The aim of reading Scripture is to hear God speak and to know what God has said through the holy prophets and apostles in what was written down for our good. Now, I want you to notice again in our context of 1 Timothy chapter 1, against the Ephesian church's treacherous teachers who contorted the law to their own self-glorifying purposes that Paul writes to Timothy and to us, look at these verses, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Let me just ask you a question. Does that sound familiar? It should. It should. What is Paul thinking about here? What's on his mind as he writes this down? These two verses alone, 
here, the Apostle Paul importantly traces the outline of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 5, known to us today as the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. You'll see this comparison on the screen behind me. Just let your eyes look over that as I describe it a little bit. With 14 descriptive details, Paul reinforces and encapsulates the true purpose of the law, which again was never meant to save anybody, but rather was given to help men see their need for salvation. So you can write down, or just, you know, Exodus 20, it's basically the whole chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and just later on today, compare these two lists. He traces them perfectly, the Ten Commandments, and these specific breaches of God's law. Quick commercial. One of my favorite podcasts these days is called uh, Things Unseen. Things Unseen by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And just this week, he has been walking through the Ten Commandments on his podcast. It's maybe four or five minutes long each episode. I really encourage you to uh, maybe find uh, an opportunity in your week to listen along. But notice just the contours of this and how it perfectly matches with what Paul has outlined in 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. You see it right there on the screen. I'll I'll leave it without commentary. Somebody has said, you can take Israel out of Egypt, just as God uh, did before he gave the words of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, but you cannot take Egypt out of Israel. In other words, the law was given to expose the problem of sin in Israel. It was given to mediate a system of atonement that that would one day be perfectly fulfilled and abrogated in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was also given to instruct God's people as to the demands of righteous living here on the earth before him. For example, in Romans Romans 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The law was actually given to highlight human depravity, to highlight human sin. His point was that the law mediated through Moses was not given as an instrument of righteousness, but rather as a means to reveal unrighteousness. That's the real point of the law. Romans 7, verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? No, it's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with the law user. Yet if it had not been for the law, Paul writes, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Let me give you three purposes, crystal clear purposes of the law for your life as a follower of Jesus Christ today. The first purpose of the law, as John Calvin and the Reformers observed well, is to reveal sin. The law was given by God to reveal sin. We've said that already. The law is itself like a mirror, to go back to Spurgeon. You can't get mad at a mirror for what you see in its reflection. Some of us may want to do that, but you can't really do that. The same is true for the law. It was given to reveal or reflect the true nature of the one looking into it. Mirror doesn't lie. 
That's why others have called this same use a pedagogical or educational use of the law. It trains us. It, it tutors us. The law was given to show us what God demands on the one hand and what we're like on the other. A very helpful text to prove this point is Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 and following. Here Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, literally our schoolmaster or tutor or trainer, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The first use of the law is to reveal sin. Every human being who's ever honestly looked into the law sees a sinner in the the reflection. We are all sinners against God. But now the second use of the law, in addition to revealing sin, is to restrain sin. The restraining use of the law. See, the law is a mirror, but the law is also a bridle. A bridle. It reveals sin on the one hand and restrains sin on the other, but it cannot remove sin on its own. It wasn't designed for that. See, this restraining purpose of the law is also known by theologians as the law's civil use. And we have seen, sadly, over the last several weeks, a really good illustration of this use. Perhaps you've been following along the Alex Myrtle murder trial of late. Two consecutive life sentences without the hope of parole is what this man, I think, well deserved for his premeditated murder of his wife and his son. This is, in a sense, or in another manner of speaking, the Romans 13 use of the law, the civil use of the law. It is the law's use as a tidal wall, holding back the baser instincts of a sin-sick society from unbridled chaos and mayhem. Just imagine if we lived in a lawless society. Well, you don't have to imagine too much at times. But that's the use of the law. Imagine living life without the restraining functioning of the law in driving or in shopping or in serving, whatever it might be. It would actually be a lot like reading what I did this past week again as I finished the book of Judges. You know what the book of Judges describes? And in the very end, Judges 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's why we need the restraining use of the law, and it abides for us today. Well, the third and final proper use of the law, according to John Calvin and others, is what we call the moral or ethical use of the law. In other words, Scripture tells us that the law was given to show us what pleases and honors the Lord above. The law is a mirror, yes. The law is a bridle, certainly. But the law is also a flashlight. A flashlight in the darkness here on planet Earth. That is, the law reveals sin. It restrains sin. But it also reminds us of the one who kept the law. It reminds us of the kind of life that really pleases the Lord. And of our only hope in pleasing the Lord by being united to Him in faith. Again, the only people, listen, who 
use the law lawfully, Paul says in 1 Timothy, are the ones who understand that it was not, never given as a means of self-justification, but rather as a sobering indictment of universal condemnation due to sin. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and following. God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, meaning the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in that case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Be glad you're no longer under law. It is a diminishing, even destructive sort of glory. But if you're under Christ, it is a life-giving, permanent, never-ending, joyous sort of glory that you have. The law, even though the law is good intrinsically, and though the law being good possessed an essential glory and goodness, again, there is no defect. It came from God above. It bears the fingerprints of the lawgiver himself. The glory of the new covenant ushered in and brought about to those of us under grace by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brings an infinitely more profound and permanent measure of glory. So Timothy, those knucklehead teachers trying to uh, make the church bear the burden of the law again, shut them up because it only kills. That, do you understand now what Paul is saying to Timothy? This is why he's saying it so clearly. And in verse 11, the final verse of our text, we read this. <laughs> it's Paul's doxology in a sense. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. More to come on that point. But he's saying this law of Christ that we now live under is no burdensome law. It's a blessed law. It's a law of true happiness and true holiness. Why? Here's where it gets really good, guys. We're almost done. Christ, the Bible says, has fulfilled the law for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Or what of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need to preach the law, but we never preach the law apart from grace. And grace comes through Jesus Christ. You see, we stood condemned rightly under the law. However, by virtue of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and King, we have been justified fully and freely forever by His condemnation at the cross. We have life. God took our shame, our contempt, our rebellion, and placed it on His Son at Calvary. And in exchange, God placed His righteousness, His life, and His love on us. That is the gospel. For some of you here this morning, all this talk of law and holiness has you shaking in your pew. And rightly so. Rightly so. You see, Christ's death and a faithful preaching of the law brings into clear focus our universal condemnation under sin. But it also brings into stark relief God's offer of peace at the cross. You don't have to live under the law. There's an invitation for grace. If you're here this morning and the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up as you sit there under the weight of the law's condemnation, you need to hear two things this morning. First, you need to hear un compromisingly, that yes, the law condemns you as a sinner. It condemns you as a sinner. Romans 3 verse 23 applies to me as well as to you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture says in Romans 3 verse 10 that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The only way you can be found is for you to admit that you are first lost. But don't leave me there. Stay with me. Though the law condemns you as a sinner, the second thing you need to hear this morning is that Jesus Christ came for sinners. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for sinful people like you and I. You see Romans 5 verses 6 through 10 say, For while we were still sick, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You want to know what's stronger than the condemnation of the law? The gift of Christ and his love. One ounce of his blood takes away a world and a lifetime of sin. Receive his sacrifice in repentance and trust this morning. And you will be that new creation Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Peter puts it this way, God, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So if you're trying to live life all on your own, that weight that you feel is your own effort to keep the law on your own. And you'll never do it. You'll never succeed. It will crush you day after day after day. You might succeed for a moment, but you'll fail over a lifetime. You have to get the burden like Pilgrim, like Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress, off your back in repentance and trust. You see, there's something that many of us in this room have done in order to deal with our law problem. Standing before a holy and just God, we have, we have looked the Lord in the eye and we have done one thing. We have pled guilty. We have pled guilty. The rest of us here this morning, if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, we can rejoice because we have pled guilty in the court of heaven. We have received in exchange, not a life sentence, but eternal life. We have received in exchange a pardon at the price of God's Son. We have legal representation. We have a mediator and an advocate and an attorney who stepped to the side and said, Father, though they are guilty, I take their shame. I take their punishment. This one is the one that I died for. And so, we can say this, Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's our testimony, you know. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's the gospel. In three words, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, Titus. So that those who have believed in God may be careful. Here it is. To devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But notice what he says next. But avoid foolish controversies. Genealogies and dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
And all God's people said, amen. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gift of Christ, who is the Spirit, that brings into proximity our flesh and the truth. Oh Lord, I pray that if there is even one here this morning who has never personally admitted before you their rebellion and acknowledged before you your gift of righteousness in Jesus. Lord, today, may today be their day of salvation. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that this message will remind us that there is a proper use of the law to expose our need for salvation. Yes, that's a good point, even for believers. Also to restrain unlawful living, but most importantly, to point us to the perfect life that is the life of Jesus and the life by his spirit that we are now called to pursue. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.